Good morning, church. Uh, you know, I was going to let you just kind of wonder throughout the whole service because I'm sure you would have been like, why is Jason clean-shaven and wearing glasses? But as Laura mentioned, I am not Jason. I can't grow a beard, or my wife tells me that. I wish I could. Um, but if I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, uh, my name's Ryan Petrie. Uh, I serve as one of the elders here at church, and they called yesterday uh, afternoon to tell me that, that Jason was dog sick, like not just a little, he's, he's down for the count, bad sick, and couldn't be here today, and would I be willing to preach? Um, now, I'll tell you, I am always terrified to speak in front of people. I don't know if you are, but I definitely am. Um, but while I'm always terrified, I'll never turn down a chance to share the gospel, so I am pleased and happy to do that today, and we're going to do that. But before we get there, let me frame this up a little bit, and it's going to take a minute to get there. I'm going to kind of sit on the porch, so to speak, for a little while before we go in. Um, So let me frame this up a little bit. So in today's world, we live in a pretty remarkable day, a pretty amazing time where there's all sorts of advancements in technology you know, just, just a sheer amount of knowledge that we have at any moment. You can just pull up anything on your phone and find the answers. Um, the ease and the speed of travel and how fast we can just go all over the world. The advancements in healthcare. You know, you, they can make ribs and hearts and things like that. Human spare parts out of 3D printers. Blows my mind. Yet for all of that, for a thousand years of study, we can't cure the common cold. You know, we can do all these things. But we, we can treat it, but we can't cure it. We put a, a man on the moon over 50 years ago, right? And so let me describe this in case you don't know. You know what a light year is? You know, if you could travel the speed of light for a year, the distance you would cross is a light year. We've now put a telescope into space, the James Webb Telescope. It can see 28 billion light years away. So if you could travel the speed of light for 28 billion years, that's how far this telescope we can just put out into space can see. Yet, for all of that, we don't even understand why water doesn't act like other liquids. Do you realize that? Like, it doesn't follow the the laws that we would expect it to. Warm water freezes quicker than cold water. We don't really know why. We have theories. We don't know why. Water expands when it freezes. We don't understand exactly. We have theories, but we don't really know why. And I'll give you one more. For I love math. So my dad was a math and chemistry major. I love math. Never really used it a lot, but I love it. Do you know, with all the, the, the calculus and quantum mechanics and all the things we understand about math, we still can't exactly calculate the circumference of a circle. Like, that seems pretty simple, right? We can't. We can come close, but it it involves numbers so complex like pi, we can't exactly measure it. So I was thinking about these things, and as as a 21st century society, we just, we want to believe and act like we know everything. Like, we've got it all figured out. We, We know how everything works. We know the meaning of everything. Sometimes we need to be reminded by the truth. We need to be humbled by the truth that we don't. We are not 
as powerful and all-knowing as we think we are. We are very limited, very dependent. And one other topic today is, is people in groups demanding things they deserve, right? Like, I deserve this. You know, I, I've heard of teachers, I've talked to teachers, who have high school students, college students, even some parents that feel this way, that if the student just shows up, they should get a good grade. Like, that's for real. Like if, or if they do a homework, and they study, and they spend time doing it, they think, well, I've, I've spent time doing this. I should get a good grade. Doesn't matter if they have the right answers. Doesn't matter if they can do something with that knowledge or if it's, if it's accurate. They still deserve a positive reward. So there's all this proclaiming and demanding of things that we feel are deserved. And sometimes we, including myself, we need to be reminded of what we actually deserve and what we actually know and understand and how strong and powerful we are. So today, I hope to do that for both of us from Scripture, but maybe from a fairly obscure text that you may not be familiar with. But I want to express this glorious truth from a beautiful account in the Old Testament that reminds us of how undeservedly weak we really are and in need of God and his coming and what he's done for us and his completely surprising grace. And I'll tell you, I I love to read the Old Testament. I love to study the Old Testament. It's really, really, really remarkable and amazing how God is able to weave historical events exactly as they should to portray and to teach about the Lord Jesus and teach us about salvation and teach us about the character of God and how he's doing things and the plan that he's put together hundreds and thousands of years before he became flesh and dwelt among us. God is sovereign over all of it. He's sovereign over all of history, the entire redemptive plan, and the future. Every detail of it. All of it. So when you read through the Old Testament, look for Jesus. Look for what God is showing you about himself in the Old Testament. And in case you believe that I'm just making this up, trying to, trying to read things into texts, Jesus himself explains that to be true. Jesus talked about himself in the context of the Old Testament with Noah's Ark. He talked about the prophet Jonah. He talked about Moses. In John 5, Jesus says, you study the scriptures, talking about the Old Testament, diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. And then in Luke 24, after his resurrection, he's on the road to Emmaus with a, with a couple guys. He says, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So today I want to do that with you, to see Jesus in the Old Testament. And one example I want to look at is King David. A man that the Bible says is very flawed, did many things very poorly, yet was also a man after God's own heart. And the Bible speaks to him as a type of Christ or a foreshadowing of Christ, that there's at times things in his life and in his story that provides us a revelation about God and what he's about. Now, there's many situations in David's life that the Bible records that we could talk about, you know, David and Goliath is very popular. We, we know that 
fairly well if you've been in church circles for very long, or David as a shepherd. So while this story is a little more obscure, I want to quickly review a couple things to set the stage for where I'm going. To lead you into this amazing story that I hope will remind us of who we really are and what we really deserve and who God is and what he has actually done. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel. So it's pretty early in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel. And while you do that, I'm going to catch you up a little bit on the context that leads up to this story. So at this time, that the nation of Israel had been led by judges. And they got to the point where they didn't like that anymore. They're like, we want a king. Everybody else has a king. Why can't we have a king? And God warned them about that. He's like, hey, you're not going to like what a king's going to do if I give you a king. They're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Give me a king. So, so they get a king. The first king of Israel is Saul. Yeah? And he has a son. His name is Jonathan. And naturally, Jonathan is next in line for the throne. He would be the next king. That's how things are done. And David, through various encounters, he starts to serve King Saul in various ways. Through leading armies, through, through music and calming Saul when he had issues. And David and Jonathan, they become very close friends. But God has instructed the prophet Samuel to anoint David as the next king. So, do we think Saul and David are buddies? (laughs) Not at all. Saul hates David. He wants to stomp this out so that his line can continue. So he tries to kill David multiple times, yet David continues to honor Saul because he's God's anointed. He's not about to put, lay his hand on, on God's anointed. And David wrote a lot of the Psalms during this time as he's running from Saul Did I say Saul? David wrote a lot of the Psalms during this time as he's running from Saul and in caves and um, trying to save his life. So, over the course of time, Israel is at war, and Saul's in the war, and he recognizes, I'm a goner. Like, I'm dead. So rather than be killed by the enemy, he literally falls on his own sword and commits suicide. And Jonathan is also killed during the same battle. So David is made king, as God promised that he would be. Now in those days, and this is very important, in those days, when a new king took the throne, the normal, the expected thing to do was to track down all the other descendants and wipe them out, right? Like we can't have people lingering that might try to usurp the throne. I need to wipe them out. Therefore, Saul's family, rightfully so, becomes afraid and begins to flee. It's this chaos. But David is a man after God's own heart, and he didn't pursue Saul's family. Other people did. Both generals hated each other. David's general killed Saul's general, and and there's this calamity and chaos and scrambling. So after a little bit of time, this is where we get to in 2 Samuel chapter 9. So all that leading up to this scene in 2 Samuel chapter 9. And I'm going to begin in verse 1. David asked, Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? Your servant, he replied. 
The king asked, is there no one still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, there's still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, he's at the house of Machir, son of Amiel in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Now I'm going to pause there for a minute. We don't know a great deal about Mephibosheth. He's first introduced a few chapters earlier in chapter 4, and we learn that Mephibosheth suffered a fall. That during all this scrambling, when David took the throne and Saul's family is having issues and they're running and scrambling, a a nursemaid picks up Mephibosheth to, to try to rescue him and drops him. And he becomes crippled and lame for the rest of his life. He's probably five years old or so at this time. Now, I'll tell you, I have some experience in suffering a fall, if you've known me for a while. Uh, a few years ago, um, it was kind of a Humpty Dumpty, fell off a wall sort of thing. I, I did it on purpose, falling off the wall, flipping off a wall, and I destroyed my foot, just shattered it, shattered my heel into pieces. Um, didn't walk for four months, years of therapy, it, it was nasty. So I have some experience about this fall, and I know what it meant for me. Uh, you know, when I thought I was strong and prided myself on being able to do things, I was shown how weak I really am. I, I couldn't make a meal for myself. I couldn't get, get a drink of water for myself. I couldn't cut the grass. I couldn't travel for my job. I couldn't do anything for myself. I couldn't do anything for anyone else, for that matter. In fact, the, the day after surgery, uh, my son Ethan, he, he's allergic to tree nuts, So somehow he had eaten some tree nuts, had a very severe allergic reaction, and I can't do a thing. I'm just sitting there in this chair. Julia's running. She's finding the EpiPen, shooting with the EpiPen. We're calling the ambulance. They're rushing over. They all go to the hospital. I sit in a chair just watching all this happen, not able to do anything for my son. So someone in Mephibosheth's Mephibosheth's day, try to say that a couple times, It would be so much worse for him as a person who could not walk, one who would be unable to do anything for himself and is totally reliant on those around him, completely at their mercy, totally dependent. If if he was going to survive, if he would get any food or shelter or anything, and he was that way from about five to maybe 20 years old or so into adulthood, 25 So here's why I want you to start seeing the connection to us and Jesus in this story. In this true story of an ancient king named David and an insignificant lame man named Mephibosheth, the Bible says that he fell and became crippled. The Bible tells us that Adam fell by his sin, leaving not just him, but all mankind crippled. In Romans 5.12, it says, Just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all men because all sinned. In Isaiah 64, it says that all of us have become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf 
And like the wind, our sin sweeps us away. Do you understand that? That we have all fallen and are crippled in sin. Unable to take care of ourselves. Unable to clean ourselves up. Unable to do anything on our own. But wait, it gets worse. According to scripture, we're not just crippled. We are actually dead. Like crippled people can still do things, right? I mean, their, their legs don't work. They can't walk, but they can still talk. They can still use their hands. They can still interact. They can still accomplish things. We're dead. Colossians 2 says, you were dead in your sins. Ephesians 2 says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. So in other words, as fallen sinners, as spiritually lame and crippled, as actually dead in our sins, by our very nature being children of wrath, we do all the things that dead people do. Nothing. Nothing. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We are born into that nature and can't help that, can't do anything about it. We are slaves to sin. So to change that condition, we need the aid of someone outside ourselves who is not born into sin. We could do nothing to change the fact, and the same is true of Mephibosheth. He couldn't do anything to change the fact that he was lame from a fall. He couldn't do anything to change the fact that he was an enemy to the king. And again, in those days, the normal, the logical, the expected thing to do is to wipe out your enemies. So if you're family of the departed king, you had two choices. You either made a play for the throne or you ran. And Saul's descendants did that. They had, they had one who made a play for the throne or they tried to make a play for him to the throne and he was assassinated. And Mephibosheth ran into hiding for apparently 20-some years. Now, where did he go? We're going to continue the story here. So when he ran in his crippled state, uh, we'll pick it up again in verse 4. Where is he? The king said. Ziba answered, he's at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. So the Bible says that this crippled man lives in this place called Lodabar. Now, in Hebrew, the word low means no. And the word debar means pasture or thing. So he literally was living in the land of no pasture, nothing, is where he ran to, to hide. Crippled, an enemy living in this wretched land, a place that he didn't belong, didn't want to be, where there's no pasture, where there's nothing. Folks, before we're saved, we live our crippled, dead lives in the land of no pasture, in the land of nothing. People spending ridiculous amounts of time and money and energy and resources and lifetimes chasing the idols of their hearts, trying to find meaning and value, and purpose, and fulfillment, and acceptance. Guys, apart from God, it's the land of nothing. 
They will chase that, chase that, chase that, chase that, hiding from God. And it never amounts to anything. And as terrible as that must have been for him, for Mephibosheth, being lame and crippled, unable to do anything on his own, living in the land of nothing, does Mephibosheth want to be found by the king? Does, it, does he want the king to know where he's at? No way. That's the last thing he wants. He's an enemy of David in his eyes and in everyone else's eyes. So he never sought David. He's not about to, to let David know, here I am. He believed his life of crippledness and no pasture was better than being in his home. We're near the king. He'd rather live that existence. So what do you guess he's thinking and expecting when he hears that King David knows where you are and he, he's summoned you to come before him? Like, what do you think he's thinking at that time? In his mind, the only thing he could expect from King David is judgment. That's the only thing he could expect. Punishment. Ultimately, death. So let's keep reading. We'll see what happens. So we'll pick it up in verse 5 again. So King David had, had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied, don't be afraid. David said to him, For I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belongs to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? So who does the seeking here again? It is not Mephibosheth. God does the seeking. God finds out where he is, and he summons him. He goes to him. We never seek God. Like Mephibosheth, we are enemies of God. The Lord tells us in Romans chapter 3, it says, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Were it not for the action on King David's part, Mephibosheth would, at best, have remained lost and crippled, struggling for existence in hiding forever. And at worst, he would have deservedly been killed for being an enemy. Were it not for the action on God's part in our lives, we would be without hope. That would be us, remaining dead in our sin, hiding from God, chasing after things that we can never quite get because it's the land of nothing. It's a land of no pasture. You see more and more how David becomes a beautiful picture of Christ. 
It is David who calls Mephibosheth. King David seeks him until he's found, and he is the one that does the seeking and, and the pursuing. You know, many want to believe and focus on the fact that God is love, and he's just going to love everybody, that, that he would never condemn somebody. And make no mistake, the Bible is clear, God is love, but he's also holy. He's also just. And we as sinners stand condemned. We all are enemies of God and all rightfully, justly deserve death. So the king of kings, the king, the holy God, pursues his enemy. We would expect that. But not for the reasons in the outcome that we would expect. He pursues in order to save and to bless Let me read you these verses from Isaiah 53, speaking of Christ many, many years later. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So instead of getting what we deserve, not only does he not destroy us on the spot, like Mephibosheth, instead of the death that we deserve, God not only pursues us, God not only forgives us because of what Jesus has done, God not only removes our guilt and penalty, the story isn't over. If we go back to 2 Samuel chapter 9, Look how this continues. So verse 8, Mephibosheth bows down and says, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I've given, you your master's grand- I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth Grandson of your master will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever the Lord my king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. King David gives Mephibosheth, the enemy, the lame person living in hiding, He gives him land and servants and provision. And do you know what eating at the king's table means? Like, is that just, he gives him Pop-Tarts in the morning and macaroni and nachos at night. Like, yeah, he's going to eat with us. Eating at the king's table denoted that the king was adopting this insignificant enemy as a son. Like, not just being kind to him. Like, 
I'm taking him as my son. Likewise, God adopts us, the lame, the dead, the enemies, as a son. In 1 John, it says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And in Galatians, it says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And in Ephesians, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Friends, please see this. This to me is one of the best pictures of the gospel in the whole Old Testament. What did Mephibosheth have to do in order to be reconciled to King David? Did he bring a couple dollars to King David who had billions? Did did he promise to do things for King David? who had all the healthy servants he could ever want? Did Mephibosheth have to study the history of Israel and David's life and take a test and answer these questions correctly? Did Mephibosheth have to explain and make up for mistakes and sins and issues of his past? Did he he have to make up for that or explain them away? Guys, all Mephibosheth did was come when the king called and bow down before him and said, what is your servant that you would notice a dead dog like me? That's all he did. This is all we can do. We, we can't offer God anything. You can't make up for the sins of your past. Just do more good than bad. We remain dead and enemies living in hiding from God. All we can do is kneel before him, recognizing that we are dead dogs, and allow him (laughs) to just pour out unexpected, undeserved grace and mercy. We did nothing can do nothing to be reconciled to God. He remains the one who calls. He is the one who pursues. He is the one that provides everything that's needed. He is the one that takes on our sin. He is the one who removes our guilt and gives us his righteousness. He is the one who saves and adopts us. You know, it's kind of funny to me (laughs) Sometimes how how much we want to make things about ourselves. You know, it's helpful to understand that in the redemptive plan, all all of the redemptive plan of history that God has put together, it isn't even really about us. Like it's all about, you know, he's coming, he's saving, we have sin, we need him to come and save us and, and we glory in that. 
But you recognize this is not about you. This is not about me. When you look at this story closely again, you may miss it if you don't think about it. When Mephibosheth responds to the king and he bows down and says, what is the, who am I that you would notice a dead dog like me? King David doesn't even respond to him. He doesn't even answer his question. Because the king doesn't need to respond. Because it's not about Mephibosheth. It's really about the king and his unexpected mercy and overabundance of grace to this insignificant enemy. Mephibosheth is just the blessed, unworthy servant. So there's one final, very important thing that I want you to take note of, and it's how this chapter ends, how this whole story of Mephibosheth here, how it ends. And it's, you know, once Mephibosheth has been adopted, so all this has happened, the king has called him, he's come, the king doesn't do what is expected, doesn't kill him, gives him land, gives him provision, gives him servants to take care of the land, adopts him as a son, sits him at his table. We're thinking, happily ever after, right? That's the end. So in verse 12, we'll finish the chapter. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Zebra's, of Zebra, of Zebra's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. That seems like a fitting ending, right? But it's not the ending. He says, and he was crippled in both feet. This kind of seems like an odd way to to end the story, right? The Bible tells us, we don't know a lot about Mephibosheth, but the Bible tells us when we first meet him a few chapters before that he became crippled in both feet. And the Bible tells us again in the middle of this story when he goes searching for him, oh, by the way, this guy's crippled in both feet. And then it tells us again, after he's brought him from the land of nothing, after he was an enemy and restored to be a son, given everything, tells us in the last few words of the chapter. Guys, the Bible doesn't repeat itself by accident. Like when you see that happening, there's a point for the Bible to be repeating itself. So it's like he's saying, just in case you forgot, he's lame in both feet. When we become believers, even after God pursues us in the land of nothing, even after God has provided us salvation and everything that we needed for it, even after God has adopted us as sons, there is still nothing that we can do on our own. Nothing. All this has happened Oh, and he was lame in both feet. We remain completely dependent on the love and care and mercy and grace of Almighty God, the one who chose us and pursued us and saved us and seated us at his table. So as we close, I want you to listen, like really listen to these words that I want to read from Scripture. I don't want you to be distracted by what you're going to do next or the game that's coming up in a few hours or the children that you need to go get. For a few minutes, listen to these words as I read them and understand that these are about you. Like, listen to God talking to you. As for you, you were dead 
in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. The king said, who? Who can I show mercy to? God the Father is asking that. The God, who can I show mercy to? He searches for who he can show mercy to. Do you hear him calling you? Do you hear him saying, hey, I know you're in the land of Lodabar. I know you're in the land of nothing. I know that you're crippled. I I don't need anything from you. I'm not asking you to do anything for me. I just want to bless you for my own purposes, for my own glory. Run to the Father. Fall into grace. There's no need for hiding anymore. No reason to wait. Run to the Father. Let's pray. Father, you are so good, so surprisingly, amazingly good in ways that I don't know that we'll ever completely understand. Lord, would you help us see our state? Would you help us understand our crippledness, our deadness? Help us to understand what we so many times chase after and run after to try to find fulfillment and identity that all those things are low to bar, that all those things are just not going to fulfill. They're just nothing apart from you. Help us to run to you as you call, to fall down on our knees and just say, Lord, why do you notice me? But I'm thankful that you do. So, Lord, would your spirit run through this place, show us our sin. But in light of it, Lord, show us your grace and your deep, deep love and passion for us. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.